truths matter. They're why we fight wars. They're the foundation of our societies. They tell us who we are, what things mean, and what we should do. And yet we still know so little about them. Why do some people believe some ideas and not others? Why do some ideas coalesce into worldviews shared by groups and shunned by outsiders? Why do some become universally acknowledged while others are largely ignored, even though they may have the same weight of truth behind them? Today I want to discuss a book which, although written about environmental issues, is really, in my opinion, a case study in the understanding of ideas. The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann is at first glance a story of two men, Norman Borlaug and William Vogt. Borlaug is the wizard. Born to a poor farming family, Borlaug was one of the principal engineers in the Green Revolution. This is a revolution that took place not with arms, but with seeds. An agricultural engineer, he went to Mexico and had an extensive breeding program to develop resistant strains to disease of various types of wheat and other types of grain crops, found ways to make them easier to harvest, more hardy, and best of all, he was able to transplant this technology over the world. Many people credit Norman Borlaug with saving over a billion lives from starvation because of his increased agricultural yields allowed that many more people to be alive today. William Vogt, on the other hand, is the prophet. Starting with his book, The Road to Survival, he is in many ways the chief architect of the modern-day environmental movement. He was the first person to really articulate why human beings were causing problems with the environment and to think of the environment as a thing itself as opposed to just being the place where human beings live. He was a champion of preserving nature and, more importantly, of living within our limits. So, in one sense, The Wizard and the Prophet is a story of these two men and how their ideas came to compete and how their ideologies came to inform the world today. However, on second glance, this book is also a story about two different worldviews. So it's not merely about the wizard and the prophet, but it is about wizards like Borlaug, people who believe in technological optimism, people who believe that if we could only invent solutions, we could solve things like global warming, energy crises, the depletion of fossil fuels and rare minerals, and that if we were just to be innovative enough, we might be able to find solutions to our problems without actually having to restrain our own human desires and our own human needs in that process. Prophets like Vote believe this is foolhardy. They believe that we need to live within our limits, that we are components of a biological system, that we do not reside above it. So these are the same people that argue that, you know what, increasing agricultural yields may have been a mixed blessing because although it saved some people from starvation, it also allowed more people to be born and thus exacerbating the very problems that were depleting the earth of its resources to begin with. And what I think is interesting about these is not merely these two views, not merely that there are two different worldviews to consider the wizard view like Borlaug about technological optimism and a belief in the somewhat immutability of human nature, and prophets like Vogt who believe in valuing the environment in and of itself. Rather, it's also a book about how ideas manage to coalesce into a worldview. Because although our religions and a lot of our political ideologies date back centuries, if not millennia, 
These ideas surrounding the environment and the place of technology within it are fairly recent. Indeed, it is something that you can actually chronicle and look back with the biographer's pen to see what was actually going on at those times. And so I think this is a very important case study, not merely with what your opinion is of these this particular issue of, of environmentalism and whether you believe in the wizard view of inventing our way out of the problem or the prophet view that we should cut back in order to save ourselves, but also in how those ideas became powerful forces in the world. And I think there's a lot that can be drawn up here to our other major systems of ideologies, religion, politics, why do certain sets of views come together? Why do they coalesce into a package so that if you know, for instance, that someone's a Republican, that they're probably free market oriented and also against abortion? Why would those two views tend to coalesce in the same package, even though they on the surface don't have anything to do with each other? And I think that this case study and how ideas formed is the real value of this book because if you can understand how not only ideas coalesce but how they very easily could have been something different, that you could have had a different package of ideas, I think that that is a bit of a ground-shifting view of how to view the world and how to think about ideas that you come across. Before we talk about this concept of ideas and how they tend to coalesce, let's examine the actual philosophies or worldviews in question in this book. So first, let's talk about the case of the wizards. Now, obviously, there's no actual individual person who's the representative of the wizards, although Borlaug is certainly the prototypical example. But this is rather a group of people that tend to believe certain things about the world. So the first, I would say, is that on the end of values, that human suffering matters, that alleviating human suffering, such as hunger is very important, even if that maybe has some environmental consequences. Now, I think it is quite interesting that Borlaug himself grew up as a poor farmer. So for him, being surrounded by farmers that often struggled to make their livelihood, when he would travel to Mexico and see the sort of destitution of a lot of the uh, subsistence farmers there, that was, in his mind, his priority, that the earth is there to provide for human beings and human needs, and to neglect those human needs, especially in the idea of some abstract environmental cause, is a kind of wrong. So at one end, what is the difference between the wizards and the prophets is a bit of a difference in what is the ultimate value, or what is the thing that should take primary precedence when considering things. And in the wizard's case, I believe it is human welfare is taking the front seat. Second is the belief in technology helping the problem, that we can engineer our way out of some of our issues, that if we could just study the problem long enough, we could find solutions to it. And there is good reason for this optimism. Indeed, the Green Revolution was in many ways a success. It allowed for much higher crop yields, it was transplanted to other countries, and this was a primarily technological innovation. It was one where developing new breeds of uh, rice and new breeds of wheat allowed for greater yields in the same conditions and greater resistance to disease and pests. And then only later are we talking about now things like genetically modified crops, but these are just sort of an extension of the general idea that technology can solve some of these problems. Another side belief, I would say, of these wizards is that technology is easier to change than human nature. 
meaning that although living within our means and having less children and controlling our own greed or our human desires uh, may be something that figures in the wizard's plan, they believe that the technological problem of growing more crops, harvesting more energy, being more efficient, that that is ultimately an easier problem to solve than the human problem. Now let's consider the case of the prophets. Now the prophets argue that yes, human suffering matters, but the environment matters too. And the world in which we exist is not merely there for our own benefit. It is an ecosystem that has its own independent value and independent existence. And although a lot of the concerns of the wizards were stated in terms of us bringing about our own disaster by exceeding the, quote, carrying capacity of the land by consuming resources faster than they can be naturally replenished will lead to our own downfall, it's very clear that the people who took this movement to heart also had a great respect for nature itself. They believed that we should leave some nature well enough alone, that we should not try to extract every little bit of value from nature. Indeed, they often argue that technology can make things worse if the problem is that we're extracting too much from the land, if the problem is that we're consuming too much resources, belching too much carbon dioxide into the air, uh, trying to wring more calories out of our agricultural land than is sustainable, then technology is merely accelerating this problem. It's not solving it. If we create a world that feeds 14 billion people, well, we've just cut the length of time until we run out of these natural resources in half. The other part about this is also, I would say, a certain kind of technological humility as opposed to the optimism of the wizards. So while a lot of people in this field are scientists, and so this is not an anti-scientific worldview, the prophet view of the world is also one of humility. It's also one that we must be careful when we put on our wings of wax, lest we fly too close to the sun. In another book I discussed uh, previously, Seeing Like a State, James C. E. Scott had a big discussion about the difference between Medus and Techni. Medus being the idea of practical local know-how that comes from working with the land and working in local conditions and figuring it out, whereas Techni is the kind of abstract laboratory science that exists apart from the world and believes that if the world would just follow its recommendations, everything would get fixed. Now, in that book, I was uh, following James e. Scott's criticism of the Techni viewpoint, the idea that people in a laboratory in an ivory tower can necessarily decide how people on the ground should solve their problems. Yet the Green Revolution certainly seems to be an example of the opposite of, of an outsider, in this case Norman Borlaug, going to Mexico and trying to do things that many botanists told him couldn't work, mixing strains of wheat that were for different climates and believing, you know what, I'll just try to make it work here. And in some ways, maybe he got lucky. In some ways, perhaps just the chance product of genetic mutation allowed him to succeed when normally that would have failed. However, I think it's very interesting here because this is a real split between those worldviews. The one worldview believing in a kind of communal living arrangement, which is living off the land. It's about avoiding large-scale industrialized changes. It's a certain viewpoint that progress in human affairs may be leading us backwards, maybe leading us more quickly to our own ruin. So who is right? 
I think prior to this book, I would have fallen very firmly in the wizard camp. I've read books from, for instance, Steven Pinker uh, and uh, Matt Ridley, who argue in favor of optimism. And I think that the kind of, you know, intellectual tribe that I, I find myself uh, encircled by tends to be the kind of people that value engineering solutions, that value thinking about problems rationally and, and making innovations, and tends not to be the kind that is against these kinds of innovations. So from that was probably my bias going in, is that when I was going in to listen to this book, I was heavily bias towards Borlaug and listening to sort of his view of things and I was somewhat slated against vote. I was somewhat slated against what I interpret to be his somewhat anti-humanistic view by placing nature and the environment above the needs and welfare of many individual human beings. However, after hearing both cases in full and really listening about the genesis of these ideas, I am persuaded that they both actually are intellectually coherent and they they make good points. And I think that there's certainly a case where both sides could learn from each other, but also not the case that it is a knockdown argument in favor of one over the other. So one of the things that I think is uh, sort of interesting is that historically, the predictions of the wizards seem to have been more correct than the predictions of the prophets. We can think about um, the population bomb by Ehrlich, which was a major book predicting imminent human catastrophe, imminent, uh, you know, apocalypse, wiping out of human civilization because we were simply having too many people. And the fact that this prediction was just laughably false, that the human population grew enormously over the period of time he predicted and we did not have the catastrophe, that seems to be a strike against the prophets that it was the case that we were able to find solutions to our problems and we did not end up in destitution and poverty. Yet I wonder whether it was not the case that the wizards were right, but also somewhat by accident. That I don't think most people who would have seen the data going forward would have predicted that in developed countries, flush with more wealth, they would have actually had fewer children than developing countries, that countries that were poorer would have faster population growth than countries that were richer. This is very counterintuitive, and I don't believe there was really anyone on either side who was proposing this. So now it's certainly an open question of whether or not the wizards who believed in this technological optimism, were they right on principle or were they right by accident? And I think this is somewhat important because there are strong biological reasons or ecological reasons to give the profit view that human rapid human expansion and consumption of resources may cause irreparable harm to the environment. Certainly, I think the one area where the profit view of the world is still uh, the kind of most intellectually respectable is in global warming, because this is an area which we have not really done much to solve, and carbon dioxide emissions continue to rise, and if the climate model is continue, that may be a problem in a century from now. However, if we look at the past track record of other supposed environmental crises, it definitely looks like the doomsayers, the prophets, have a bit of egg on their face. And so I think the real question of whether or not they were right 
they had the right idea, but it turned out that they were wrong for a different reason is somewhat of an important one. Because if the wizards are vindicated, if the people who are technologically optimists are vindicated merely by accident, that may not be that useful in predicting what we should do in the future. An aspect of this discussion that I think sometimes gets missed is the entanglement of instrumental questions about the best way to achieve our mutual ends and questions of ultimate value or what things really deserve our importance and significance. Now, it's clear that the wizards and the prophets do have divergences in what they consider to be the ultimate value of our human activity. The wizards see it as the environment being uh, subservient to human needs. So if we can extract more resources without, you know, harming our future supply of resources, if we can continue to sustain the human selves, then this is what is primarily important. Whereas many environmentalists, many people who are of the profit street, believe that the nature itself, the environment itself, the ecosystem itself, has its own intrinsic value that deserves protecting. And just because we can maybe, let's say, extract resources from the rainforest or strip the uh, coral reef systems dry, does not mean that we should. Even if it would not cause human harm, it causes harm to nature. Now, these are differences in values. But what strikes me when look, looking at a lot of these discussions is that Although these different ultimate values may dictate priorities differ slightly, um, they are not usually directly in conflict. So what is interesting here is how these questions of ultimate value kind of create an aesthetic. They create a certain way of looking at the world and valuing certain solutions that match a particular type of aesthetic. So for the wizards, science-driven, technologically optimistic, um, sophisticated methods coming from kind of an intellectual center that are massively deployed around the world. These are the things that have value. Things that are local, things that require grassroots efforts to spread over lots of people, things that require local knowledge and local adaptation and don't involve universals tend to get devalued. For the prophets, it's the opposite. Things that tend to support a local, low-impact a uh, soft path to environmental prosperity, these are the things that tend to get lauded. And what I find interesting here is that if we were to be perfectly rational and sit down and decide what should we do to accomplish the things, and even if we accepted that the prophets and the wizards maybe have some divergence in what they think is ultimately valuable, it's likely that there would be a huge amount of things that instrumentally would benefit both parties, or they would agree is better than the alternatives. So the fact that these two sorts of approaches to the environment, that one is very technologically motivated about building solutions and that one is about locally driven sustainability efforts, the fact that these two don't integrate as much as they should, I think should call a little bit of alarm in your head. Because in my mind, the fact that these two ideas uh, diverge slightly should mean that there's actually a huge overlapping part of the set of solutions that both participants would find uh, find useful. But the fact that they don't, I think, is also something about the nature of ideas. So this is something I wanted to turn to because whatever you decide is the best, whether you believe that the wizards are right or the prophets or whether you believe that they're both somewhat right, I think it's interesting to hear about how ideas flow together. 
The first aspect of this flow of ideas is that there's a strong hindsight bias in looking at the ideologies and worldviews that exist today. So one thing that I found incredibly interesting in this book is that environmentalism, starting in votes days, had a twinge of a right-wing cause to it. So now it seems almost impossible to think of environmentalism as being a right-wing cause because it's obviously a left-wing cause in modern politics. It's not the Republicans who are championing environmental movements. It's not uh, the business interests that are generally supportive of, you know, wide-scale environmental reform. Rather, it is leftist movements. It is movements that lie left of center on the political spectrum that tend to be championing it. And interestingly, environmentalism, when it was started, had this right-wing kind of association. And uh, Charles E. Mann even documents that in as late as the 70s, there were some people who were protesting uh, left-wing groups, sort of socialist groups that were protesting environmental causes because they argued that, you know, this was just a Wall Street distraction, that this was something that was distracting away from the important issues of organized labor. So I think this is very interesting. Now, it's certainly possible that the kind of initial right-wing tinge was unstable and it's naturally kind of a left-wing sort of cause, but I think this should kind of open you up to the idea that maybe worldviews coalesce not because there's just this natural ordering to it that environmentalism belongs with you know believing in power to the people and against corporate interests and that it's a left-wing cause but that this might even be accidental that this might be something that if the right-wing twinge had continued for longer or tinge of the uh, ideas that continue for longer, that it might be something we associate now with a uh, Republican Party or we associate with a conservative view of the world, that um, the left-wing view might be that, well, you know, the poorer nations of the world, they're the ones who need support and promoting the environment is a kind of elitist view at the expense of people who are really struggling to get food to eat. So the fact that these sort of initial inclinations of ideas might determine their eventual destiny is, I think, an interesting one to consider. In mathematics, there is a notion of systems that behave this way, which is called chaos theory. So chaos theory is basically a study of systems that slight changes in initial conditions can lead to wildly different uh, end results. And I think you can contrast chaotic systems with stable systems. So for instance, the Earth's orbit around the sun is a stable system. It's one that uh, even if there's a little perturbation in the Earth's orbit, it's not like we're going to rapidly crash into the sun or fly off into the outer space outside the solar system. Rather, a little bit of a perturbation is going to be balanced in the long run. So it's useful whenever considering some kind of complex system to think to yourself, not just how does the system work, but how chaotic is it? Because a very stable system means that sort of regardless of what individuals do, regardless of little chance events that happen along the way, we're going to end up with the same results. On the other hand, if ideas are chaotic, meaning that once a particular viewpoint gets a certain association, so once you associate a particular way of looking at the world with a particular political ideology, that that tends to be self-reinforcing. So it's certainly possible that 
some ideas that are packaged together as an ideological grouping may not necessarily be so. So it could be, for instance, that the uh, connection between right-wing free marketism and a certain religious bent, that that might be a coalescence of ideas that is not natural, that that's not the way that it had to be, that it's possible that it could have been the opposite way around, that uh, the you know controlled market and highly religious group could have been one and the secular free market group could have been another. So I find this very interesting because I think it starts to make you wonder about what are the ideas that operate in your life and are you buying into sort of packages of ideas that are kind of arbitrary, that they don't necessarily need to all be there. You could believe some and, and not agree with others. So I think this continues to a sort of an open question of why do ideas tend to coalesce into worldviews? Why did the wizard's belief in technological optimism also coalesce with their I, their preference for large-scale interventions? Why did it coalesce with the view that human beings were of a greater ultimate value than the environment on its own? Why did prophets like Vote uh, believe that uh, in sort of smaller-scale action rather than massive collective uh, industrial institutional changes? So in one sort of explanation of these ideas is because that certain ideas have a kind of affinity for them, that the actual logical content of the idea, the idea of whether or not something's true, that those ideas tend to cohere because they are, you know, not mutually contradictory. So this is certainly the kind of classic view of things, so that people, for instance, who believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old um, are also likely to dismiss evolution because those ideas are somewhat incompatible, right? That if evolution were to be true, then the earth would have to be a lot older than 6,000 years. And so these sort of direct logical contradictions between the ideas are part of the reason that biblical literalists believe that the world is 6,000 years old and tend to reject evolution. Similarly, people who believe in uh, the laws of physics might also be more skeptical of paranormal things because there's a little bit of a logical contradiction here. However, I think what's interesting is that this explanation of ideas being grouped together by their logical consistency is massively over-explaining the actual degree of coherence that we find, that I believe that most ideas don't actually have the logical implications that people would want them to do. So people tend to believe clusters of beliefs in my opinion, not because uh, not because one idea logically necessitates another idea, but because some third factor that causes us to be drawn to certain ideas causes us to pick ideas which maybe are logically unrelated to each other and attach them to each other. And once those ideas attach to each other, then they tend to become part of a package. So what are some of the reasons why this kind of thing might happen and why it might lead to these clusterings of little belief structures that are far more uh, consistent and cohesive than maybe they deserve to be? So one of them is that the associative quality of ideas runs a lot further than their logical consistency. So it may be the case that believing in uh, evolution and uh, believing in physics 
are not necessarily deeply logically connected, that there's not really a logical proof that runs from quantum mechanics to natural selection, but that they have a certain kind of aesthetic appeal, that they both sort of have this general kind of naturalism, preferring a kind of simple rule structure. And so there's this third aesthetic judgment of what ideas are true that tend to dominate. So if you're the kind of person that likes... Uh, things that have a more mysterious quality to it or you tend to dislike things that have are devoid of meaning or devoid of human level significance then maybe you will be pushed away from both of those ideas even though the two ideas are let's say not logically uh, required to go together Another reason is that movements, and many worldviews are movements, they're not just a way of thinking about the world, but they're also a collection of people aimed at a particular cause, and movements tend to get defined by their enemies, and I think this is particularly important in the battle between wizards and prophets, is that both sides tend to view the other side, and as well as people who are not merely those two sides, as enemies of their cause. So prophets don't merely suggest that, oh, we should be taking care of the environment more and the environment is its own good and let's find ways to do that, but they tend to see people that they view as being enemies of that cause. So it could be the wizards who believe in trying to be more efficient with technology to extract more resources from the environment. It could be people who don't like the environment at all or who believe in short-term gain. And so this is a important part of movements is that because they might define enemies and because you don't want to associate with your enemies this can create an artificial polarization between ideas so ideas that might have had quite a bit of overlap might naturally sap separate into two groups that kind of get defined by their conflict and i think this is true in a lot of political contexts as well because we often talk about politics as if the left and the right have nothing in common but really as people living in a you know, in a society together, we have a ton of mutual interests. We believe a ton of things are for our mutual interests and mutual benefit, but that's not how we tend to talk about it. We tend to focus on the very things that drive us apart. <clears throat> another, uh, another possibility for explaining this flow of ideas is a network effect of beliefs. So one way of thinking about this is that if I read a book or if you listen to a podcast, for instance, and someone says a lot of things that I tend to agree with, then I'll think this person is smart. I believe uh, what he's saying because he's saying things that I think to be true. And I'm more likely to believe some new thing that he tells me. And so what this can create is perhaps uh, different groups or different groups of people who tend to believe certain things because when their members discuss their view of an idea, they're more likely to have all these other shared beliefs. So when I hear them talk, I'm more likely to say, oh yes, I agree with you on items one through nine of what you say. So when you say item number 10, I'm much more likely to agree with you than if someone said something I disagree with from one to nine, and then they say something unrelated as number 10. So I think this grouping is also another explanation that it may be that we kind of fall into tribes, so to speak, of of people who believe the same thing and we're more likely to believe those people and so we get into these little groups that tend to believe the same ideas. And I feel like this was certainly my case prior to reading this book that the group of people that I tend to listen to are on the wizardly end of things. And so when I first hear this case from the prophet and I hear him saying things that 
I disagree with. I'm immediately biased against William Vogt and some of his ideas. And it takes work to pull out of that. It takes work to actually consider ideas that are associated with other ideas that you disagree with. So why does any of this matter? Well, I think first it should be important to you if you want to know what the truth is. If you want to know what ideas are not merely to belong to some group, but to find out how reality actually works, then the coalescing of ideas around worldviews and the sort of artificial way that things group together more than they should, should make you suspicious of someone who's trying to sell you a package of ideas. Someone who's trying to sell you an ideology or a worldview that includes lots of different logical propositions. So what happens is because of this coherence, it means you should probably start to question more things that you believe that happen to agree with other things that you believe. So I'll give an example of where this has impacted me recently. Now, I am a big proponent of self-improvement. I definitely take an optimistic viewpoint with the role of the individual to change and shape his or her own life. And so naturally, when I started reading about research on intelligence, I was somewhat skeptical of the notion. I was skeptical of the notion for the reasons I already mentioned, because many of the people that I follow who are sort of human development optimists tend to be skeptical of intelligence and also because there is some logical tension or some effective tension between these ideas that if you believe intelligence is largely fixed or you believe that it predominates the outcomes of people's lives that you're more likely to uh, be a pessimist for what an individual can do and so this meant that I was somewhat on the fence about those ideas and digging through and reading more deeply, I realized, well, actually, if I go through a lot of the research, not to say that I agree with everything that people who, you know, are fans of, um, you know, intelligence and having strong impacts on human nature, but certainly I was more wrong before than I was right. And so I think that this is an example of a particular idea not really being logically connected to other ideas I have. So the idea that intelligence is important does not necessarily undermine the idea that your individual choices matter or that you can make those choices have um, have impact on your personal life for improving it. But because they have a certain flavor to them that is associated, it's difficult to accept one and the other and not keep them logically related. So in in my mind, I feel like this is a good exercise to follow is to try to question the ideas that you believe because they tend to get paired up with other ideas you believe and to be more open to the idea that, you know, it may be you're wrong about those. I don't really know a systematic way of exploring this, but I think reading books from people you disagree with and in particular, getting exposed to ideas that you disagree with and simply just not rejecting them. Just being like, you know what, unless I see knockdown evidence that this is wrong, I'm going to be open to the possibility that even though it doesn't sit too well with some of my other ideas, I'm going to think that this might be true. The other idea is that when we're thinking about ideas, we also have to think about our role in shaping the ideas in the world itself. So ideas never come out de novo. They always arise from the associations of existing ideas. And I think that the lessons in The Wizard of the Prophet are really a case study in that. 
that when these ideas were getting started, they already had the branded associations of the movements that they were part of and the arguments and discourses of the day. Again, talking about environmentalism originally being somewhat of a right-wing cause, I think is interesting in that respect because it was associated with that largely because of the somewhat racist views of some of the aristocratic uh, um, landholders who believe that, you know what, there was too many poor and starving masses and we need to protect the environment and let some of them just die out. And this is, I think, a rather tragic viewpoint to hold, but it's also aware that the early environmentalists kind of struggled at this point because if you are starting your ideas and they have this particular association, it's going to be harder to recruit allies that maybe would buy into your ideas in a different vein. I also think about how when you start ideas and give them a particular political association, you may also unduly attract enemies towards those ideas. So if an idea gets branded with a political slant to it, that this becomes a right-wing idea or a left-wing idea, it may also cause people to reject it prematurely without considering it. One of the ideas I think is quite unfortunate right now is that the effort to do things about global warming has definitely adopted a kind of left-wing stance, which is unfortunate because I think there's probably good reasons for vested interests on the right to also want to work towards solving this problem. But because it has achieved this sort of political flavor of being left-wing, it's something that's harder to work on because there's going to be a lot of people that are skeptical of it. And there's going to be also a lot of people on the left who want to use the association of global warming with left-wing ideas to also champion causes that also maybe aren't logically connected to it. So I think this is also important as being someone who talks and discusses ideas and maybe even if you're a writer or a thinker or a generator of ideas, of thinking about how they fit in with the existing ideologies, the existing worldviews. Because how they sit in that existing thing I think also determines a lot of whether they become big and they become popular. Ultimately, I think The Wizard and the Prophet is a very interesting book to read for the three reasons I mentioned at the start. First, it is a biography, in some sense, between Norman Borlaug and William Vogt. So you can hear the story of two men that have had a profound impact on our lives today and yet have largely remained unknown. I had heard very briefly of of Borlaug and I had heard nothing at all about Vogt prior to reading this book. So at the very least, it's important for that reason to read about our history and who these two men were and the influence they had. Second, I think it's important because the issue at hand, the future of the world and the environment is an important issue. And I think it's important to hear both sides of the story fully. Too often we get absorbed into our side. And in my case, it was the wizards, but for many, it might be the prophets. And we are unwilling to really fully consider the nuance and complexities of the argument on the other side. I really like a book like this. I would love it if uh, Charles C. Manor, another similarly ambitious author, could do something similar for many other contentious issues because I think having a book which lays out the worldviews side by side would have a lot for it and it would prevent a lot of the kind of shallow disagreement that we engage in now. Finally, I think it's useful just for... uh, an understanding of the sociology of ideas, of how worldviews come to dominate, how they tend to coalesce, how they can have certain random perturbations in the beginning that can influence their eventual standing and eventual final product, and even how they can overcome those so that 
for instance, right environmentalism starting out with right-wing implications now being a fully left-wing cause. I think that this kind of transformation and flow of ideas is very interesting just from a study of how human minds work. So that's it for this month. Next month, we're going to continue this exploration of the power of ideas with the book that popularized the notion of the paradigm shift, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas S. Kuhn. Thank you.